and let's turn to our passage for this morning. Uh, Today, we're going to, again, as mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, and we're going to start our time together in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So please uh, take your Bibles. I'll give you a moment to turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. pretty easy book to find at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Let's start together. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside of it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, took the scroll from the right hand of him who seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down. And worshiped. Let's pray. 
dear God, I, I, I hope that with everyone that is here today joining us to hear your message, God, from Revelation chapter 5, I pray, God, that your spirit would work in the midst of every single person so that during this time, as crazy and as unpredictable and even, dare I say, distracting and a little bit too comfortable, God, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be focused on you, that we would be worshiping you because you are truly our only hope. I ask and I pray, Lord, this morning, God, that you would be with us to remind us that you truly are the lion and the lamb. Thank you, God, for the time that you have given us in your word. And I pray that for every single person that hears your word, that they would be moved to worship you. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen. Well, if there's one question I want to kind of start us off with this morning, it is the question of how do you worship? knowing that Christ is your only hope. The truth of the matter is that in order to understand that question, I think we need to understand the severity of sin, the heinousness and the wickedness and how problematic and evil it truly is. We need to be able to see this sin in the world around us, not just in the world, but in our country and in our community and even in our family, but most importantly of all, we need to see the sin inside of us. And when we see that sin and understand it, and when we feel it and it moves us and grieves us, we need to worship and respond. Worship and respond to Christ because we understand at that moment when we understand sin that truly he is the only one that has reason for us to hope. In the midst of the situation, he is the only one that we can trust. When it comes to our sin, he is the one we are to worship. Today, we're going to start a series again in the book of Revelation. And this is an absolutely amazing book. I took a lot of time. We've already, uh, with the youth, uh, had a Bible study through the entire book of Revelation. And it is an incredible book. But it is written in such a way that we call it apocalyptic literature. And the reason this is important is because this book was written to give the believers in the early church a picture of the future hope that they have in Christ. You know, in the midst of all the persecution, in the midst of all the struggles, in the midst of all the, the craziness of the early church, this book was to give them hope. And the focus of the entire book of Revelation is on who Jesus Christ is and what he would do when he comes back to return. And this future perspective is to give a sense of hope during present persecution. And so as we look at this passage that we're going to look at today in chapter four and chapter five, we're going to realize that this is actually a vision that John has been given on the island of Patmos. Now, John is the writer for the book of Revelation, and he's actually one of the last remaining disciples that is alive at this time. And he's actually been exiled into this island called Patmos. And while he was on this island, he received a vision, which is the book of Revelation. 
But not just that, it is like a vision in a vision because in chapter four and chapter five, we're given the first vision that John records of the throne room of God. Not only do we see the throne room of God in chapter four, but we see the coronation of Jesus himself in chapter five. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy in this book. And the biggest question that a lot of people have is like, when do these events actually take place in the timeline of human history? And we don't have time to discuss all those details. But one thing I do say for the sake of clarity, and a lot of people would disagree with this, but I believe that in chapter four and chapter five, when John gives his description of the throne room and the coronation of Jesus Christ with authority over all the earth, that you will be there to see those events. I didn't always believe that, but as I studied this book, I come to agree that before these events and this vision takes place, we will be raptured as a church. And because we will be raptured as a church, you will be there to see the throne room of God. You will be there to see the coronation of Jesus Christ as authority over all the world. And so as we look into this chapter today, and this is the important part, as we go through Revelation chapter 5, understand that this is a picture of a vision that you will see in the future after you're raptured as a believer. And so it is something for us to be able, as we study this chapter, to be actually really excited about, to be able to anticipate and look forward to witnessing and experiencing and hearing and listening to everything John is describing in chapter five. And that is what makes this book really cool, is that not only do you say see a very, very vivid picture of who Jesus is, but you get that picture in so much detail. It's, it's a fantastic book. I could go on forever talking about it. But let's go to the chapter at hand in Revelation chapter 5. Again, this is the part two of the first vision that John has received, starting, of course, in chapter four with the throne room of God and now to the coronation of Jesus Christ. And one of the important things that I need to remind us right now before we get into the passage in verse one is that we need to understand the problem of our sin. Because when we understand the problem of our sin, we will understand that Christ truly is our only hope, and that he truly is the one that we are to worship. And so as we understand the problem of sin in the first section, I believe that once we understand it, feel it, it will move us to respond, to repent, to confess, and ultimately, of course, to worship him. Let's look at the passage in verse one, which we've already read. The first thing that we see in this in this chapter is that there is a scroll. And this scroll is absolutely important for this entire chapter in this entire book, actually. The scroll in the days of John was often seen as a contract or a deed. It was oftentimes an agreement that was made. And on the inside of the scroll were the details of that contract. But on the outside of that scroll would be a brief summary as to what was contained within it itself. 
Now, on the outside of the scroll, there would be seals, and these seals would be made to secure the contract in the presence of at least three witnesses, at least. If there was actually an important contract, a contract that demanded a lot, um, there would be multiple number of witnesses, and there would be more and more witnesses depending on the importance of the contract. And so what we have here is a contract in a scroll. And what is probably inside this scroll might be the book of Revelation in its entirety, but it is not so much the details of the earth that Christ is inheriting. Rather, the contents of the scroll are the details of how Christ will establish his authority on this earth. It is the story of his redemption. It's the story of his reconciliation. It is the story of his judgment towards sin. It is the way that he is going to inaugurate his millennial kingdom on this earth finally and put sin ultimately to death. There's a lot riding on this scroll. That's the point. It's important that we understand what is inside because unless that is opened, nothing can be changed. Nothing can be reconciled. Everything in the early church, everything on the cross, everything in the Old Testament has been building up to the culmination of the execution of this contract. And so this scroll is being held by the Father on the throne room of God. And the mighty angel makes the proclamation in verse 2, who, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who on this earth can do this? Who has the right to open the seals of the scroll that bind its contents? And this is the desperation in verse 3. As John was looking out, he saw no one, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth who was worthy to open the scroll. And this is something that deeply troubled John. As it says in verse four, he began to weep and he didn't just cry. He wailed loudly because no one was found to open the scroll and was able to look into it. In his mind, all hope was lost. In his mind, everything that everything that was going on in human history up until this point had been all for naught because there was no one that he could find. And, and you might actually wonder, as I wonder when I look at verse three and verse four, and, and you, you ask yourself, why, why did John not think of Jesus? during verse three and verse four. Why did John forget about the cross? Why did John not think that that everything that Jesus had done up until this point would be enough to make him worthy to open the scroll? Why didn't he remember that? Why didn't he think of that? And what I think is really important to understand in this exclamation in verse three and verse four is that John was absolutely overwhelmed with the reality of sin in this world. 
He was absolutely overwhelmed with the need for redemption. You need to understand that up until this time in the early church, through John's ministry, he has been under amazing persecution in a terrible way. He's been going through so much for the cause of Christ. He's witnessed and seen evil on a day-to-day basis. It's surrounding him constantly, and it's something that is building up inside of him. And when you finally get to the 10-yard line and you're ready to see redemption, you're ready to see justice, you're ready to see judgment, you're ready to see everything put back right with all the persecution and evil that you've been forced to put up with for so long and to find immediately in front of you that there is no one worthy to open the very scroll that will save mankind. He is absolutely overwhelmed with grief and anguish over the sin and the reality of sin, not just in the world, not just in the country, not just in this community or his family, but inside of him. And he thinks at that moment, maybe all is lost. If we cannot open the scroll, then all of mankind will not be redeemed. Because this is the final hour for John. And while his weeping and his cries are understandable, they are premature. Because sure enough, God does not disappoint. And what we find is John, who understands his sin, feels his sin, and responds, as we will see with the revelation of verse 5, 6, and 7, to the announcement of Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment to pause here for a second, because I think One of the biggest things that hit me in the first part of this passage is the reality of the wickedness of sin. And to me, as I've been seeing and reading and paying attention to everything that's going on in this world, a lot of things with the virus, a lot of things with politics, a lot of things in the country and all around globally, it it makes me understand better how John is feeling right now in this passage. There's a big part about me that is is saying to myself that this world is progressively not getting better, but worse. It it might even be that, that what we're going through right now with this quarantine might be the easy part of our journey. And that in 2021, it might even get worse. And there's a possibility of that. And there's things that you're seeing in people. There's things you're seeing in yourself. There's things that you're seeing even with what the church is having to do. And you grieve at what is going on. You might feel frustrated. You might feel fear for what you hear is taking place. And in my mind, I see that this is going to be a persecution that grows for the Christian life. That life as we go forward will not get easier, but will become more difficult in the days that we approach what is described in the book of Revelation. As we get closer and closer to the end of days, it's going to be even more important every day to focus on Christ. 
Because as things become more difficult, he truly will be our only hope and nothing else will matter except for him. I want to make that point, particularly with what we see and what I feel and what we've experienced together. And that is the beauty of verse five to seven. Because in the midst of John's anguish, in the midst of John's pain, he finally realizes that there is hope in Christ. Know that Christ is our only hope and that he deserves our absolute respect. I I really am excited to share with you this passage. Verse five, this section of scripture. And the elder comes up and says, one of the 24, weep no more. He probably understands why John is weeping. And you're probably there to watch it. You're there feeling what John feels. You feel the desperation. You're seeing this happen in real time while you're standing there because you've been raptured with the church. And then out of nowhere, an elder comes up, stands up and says, don't you cry. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Christ is the lion. Now, you guys know lions are no wimpy creatures. They are formidable beasts. And lions, as you know, especially male lions, when they take over a pride, they are in charge. And, and it's true. The lionesses do uh, provide for food. They do hunt. Uh, they do attack and defend. But it is the primary role of the male lion in the pride to destroy any other male lions who come to attack those that he calls his own. And that is exactly what is being described in this passage with the lion, that he came to conquer so that he can open the scroll. Understand that Jesus Christ is represented in the book of Revelation, not as some fluffy creature that you can hug and feel absolutely peaceful with in that sense, but he is very, very dangerous. He will come to destroy. He will come to tear apart and rip apart. He will come to judge and he will come to attack anything that stands against his kingdom. He will come in the book of Revelation. And if you read through the book, it's a very, very dark book, but he does so because he comes to establish his rightful kingdom. And so I love the way that it's represented in the Chronicles of Narnia. You've heard the line. I've repeated it a number of times and I love it so much. It's when Mr. Beaver is asked by Edmund about Aslan. And Aslan, as you know, is the lion that is in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Edmund asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Beaver, Mr. Beaver says, and laughs in some way, of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. I, I love that. Because when Jesus Christ returns, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. 
And when he returns, we ought to be on the right side of him. Because when he comes back, while he came previously to seek and save the lost, now he will come back to judge and destroy. And so he is the lion. But he is not just a lion. For us to stop here and say that he is just a lion would be incomplete. He is not just a lion. He is also a lamb. And he is a beautiful lamb. He is what uh, the Greek calls a little lamb, like a pet lamb, a perfect, beautiful, innocent, and pure sacrifice. And, and it's almost amazing to, to understand how Jesus does what he does in a contrasting nature. Understand that it is the lamb that has destroyed the dragon of sin and Satan. It is a lamb that has won over the earth against death. Because this lamb is not dead. This lamb is alive. And it says that this lamb was standing even though it had been slain. Meaning it is alive, it is standing, but you can see when you're there, you'll see that there's a scar on that lamb where the father crushed his own son. I want you to see this in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 5. I know we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I want you to see it. And in the middle of verse 9, it says, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is where the lion comes out in Jesus. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God that they shall reign on the earth. I want you to see another passage that describes the propitiation of Jesus Christ when he came to be the lamb. He needed to take on or atone for the wrath of God for your punishment of sins. And because he took your spot, he substituted himself for you. He took on your punishment by enduring the full wrath of God. And by his blood, when he was slaughtered on that cross, he purchased your life. We are now slaves of God. We are now ransomed for a price because his blood has purchased us out of a slavery to sin. We are now slaves to God. And this is a passage that really best demonstrates what he did for us with the Father. And because the atonement of that wrath needed to be made in verse 10 and 11 of Isaiah 53, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord. And I think this is God, the father to crush him. He was put, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. Jesus shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, meaning he'll be resurrected. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in Jesus's hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of Jesus's soul, 
he shall see, the father will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many, this is key, to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. It is because the father crushed his son for you and for me. And as he was watching his son die on that cross, he satisfied his anger and his wrath towards you and me. And now we are able to be approaching the father because of what Jesus has done for us. And we belong to him because he has the authority over our lives based on what he has done for us on the cross. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. This is the coronation of Jesus. This is the authority that now Jesus gets in this chapter because of what he has done on the cross. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, the church. You see, the interesting thing about this is that until Revelation chapter 5, not everything is completely under the control of Jesus's kingdom. You see, it is until we get to Revelation chapter five in history that we will finally see the full culmination of authority and power go to Christ when he returns and establishes his millennial kingdom. But until that day comes, we are living in a time of persecution, evil, wicked sin all around us. But at the end of the day, we need to be remembering that he is the one ultimately at the end of the day with the power. We see this in uh, Revelation chapter five, verse six, as we go back to our main passage. John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. But he had seven horns, which is the complete representation of power, with seven eyes, which is a complete omniscience of everything that goes on in this world. And he knows everything. With the seven spirits of God, and this is commonly understood to be the Holy Spirit, that as the Holy Spirit now pervades the church, he knows everything. There's nothing we can do to ex escape the presence of God because the Holy Spirit is everywhere at the same time. And he went, I love this in verse 7, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And I can just imagine that with the father. The father, as we will see, has the scroll in his right hand. He's sitting on the throne. And Jesus, because of all that he's done on the cross for you and for me, takes that scroll. And as if it was the book of Revelation, Jesus would probably say, I've got this. I'll take this. Because he alone is worthy with all power and authority. And when we understand our sin 
and we understand the wickedness and the evil in our lives, inside of us, when we understand it and we grieve over it and we feel it, we ought to respond in worship. And that's what we see for the remainder of this chapter together today that we see a beautiful representation of worship, uh, an absolute amazing, mysterious, and um, overwhelming worship from two different songs. The first of the two songs starts in verse 8. In verse 8, we have the four living creatures. Now, the question then becomes like, who are these four living creatures? The truth of the matter is, is that we don't know who they are. Uh, they could possibly be the highest ranking angels in the entire throne room of God. Some, some say that they are the guardians of God's throne room. Other people say that they are represented in the figures that are on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But the truth of the matter is we have no idea who these four living creatures are. There's a sense of mystery that comes with these four living creatures that guard the throne room of God. And that's a good thing, I think, because there are certain things that we need to know now. And there are certain things that we don't need to know now, but we will fully realize when, they're, when we are there in Revelation chapter 5 to see for ourselves. We will see these four living creatures in person. And we will understand who they are and what their importance is when the time is right for us to know. But along with the four living creatures that are worshiping, we have the 24 elders. And there's a lot of detail in this passage, as you can see. But there's a question that comes with who is the 24? Uh, and, and why 24? Why not three or seven or 12? Why 24? And Suffice it to say, numbers are a big deal in the book of Revelation. As you go through the book, you see lots and lots of numbers in Daniel and Revelation and even Matthew 24. But the thing about this is, is that when you look at the 24, 12 has always been a complete number. There's been 12 disciples, right? There's, there's that mention of 12 all throughout. But on top of that, there's a doubling of the complete number of 12, which makes it 24. And so what I think this is, is the raptured church in complete entirety up until that point. That the 24 elders represent you and me who are there at the throne room. And we will sing this song together as an entire group of believers up until this point. Now, true, there will be people that are saved throughout the book of Revelation. But as of this point, these are the ones who have been raptured, fully represented by the 24 elders. Now, who are going to be those 24 elders? I have no idea. Okay, I'm not going to even guess. That would be a wild goose chase. But the fact of the matter is, I believe, is that we together will sing this song. And even though we've already looked over it, let's look over it again. And they sang a new song. Some of you have heard churches named new song. Worthy are you, and of course to Jesus Christ, to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, you bought people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And I can just imagine if you close your eyes and you hear all of the complete church, along with the magnificent voice of the four living creatures singing that song together. I'm looking forward to that. The next song that you hear is started by the angels. Now, this is a little controversial, especially during Christmas, but it is said that you have never heard angels sing, even with the shepherds. That in the shepherd's uh, parable, uh, parable, the story of the shepherds, that they heard the declaration of the angels, but not the song of the angels. And it is said that this is actually the first song of the multitude of angels all at once. That is what some people say. And so John sees many. <laughs> That's an understatement of angels. In, in fact, it's, it's myriads and myriads. It is, it is the best number that it's the largest number that the Bible had at that time to represent the quantity of angels that John saw. John didn't have a number bigger than myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. He's trying to express the vastness of what he saw. And we have no idea how many angels there are in the world. And all together they sang, worthy is the lamb who is slain. This is all to Jesus to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And this is where everything joins in. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne. Some of you have heard this worship song and unto the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures, those mysterious creatures all declare amen. And we, as a church, the elders fall down and we worship. How do you worship? When you know that Christ is your only hope. Do you realize the sin in your life? Do you realize the heinousness of sin, the trouble, the problem of sin in your life? Do you realize how much you need Christ as your Lord and Savior to believe that he truly did 2,000 years ago on a cross, die for the punishment of your sins, and then rise again? And today we read that he takes authority over all of heaven and all of earth and all of creation and establishes his kingdom in this book of Revelation. Brothers and sisters, when I think about what is going on in my life, I realize how much it is important to be reminded of the need to focus on Jesus Christ. And I say this in my own life because I'm realizing how comfortable I, I'm becoming. Because of the quarantine, because of staying in one place and having conveniently to do most of my work on the laptop and through meetings and so, so forth, it's becoming ridiculously easy in the convenience of everything to get really comfortable. 
to be able to fall asleep spiritually, to see and witness not only in the ministry, but in my own life, the spiritual coldness that is sweeping the land. Do you see it? Do you see the need for us to be reminded to worship Christ, particularly now, during the dark times that are up ahead? During the thoughts that I think, you know, have things really gotten better or are they getting actually worse and worse and worse? How is it that I am becoming more distracted from Christ now? Possibly more so than when times were good, when times were normal, so to speak. And, and I think this is really important because it is undeniable that this is how the world is going to end. This is a worship song that we will sing. And so the question again is, how do we worship? It's, it's more than just what Jason and Tim are able to share with us on Sunday. It's more than that. It's more than what our fellowships are able to bring to us. It's more than that. It's more than the Bible studies. It's more than what BSF is able to bring. It's more than the conversations that we have with people we love. It is an entire life dedicated to worship because of what Christ has done. It, it's, it's every conversation that we have. It's every meeting that we have in Zoom. It's every interaction that we have at work. It is every conversation with our teacher or on school, Zoom classrooms. It's, it's with every moment that we have with our family. Even our times of rest is a worship to God because we are slaves to God and we belong completely to him. But how sneaky and how subtle and how quietly are we so distracted and falling spiritually asleep in the midst of our comfort and convenience? The reason I'm so repetitive on this is because I see this in my life. And because I see it in my life, I'm assuming it's happening in other people's lives as well. And this passage is reminding me not to get distracted, to stay focused on the only one that has hope over my sin. And as I think about it, I'm overwhelmed with the quantity of sin, even in my own life, and my need to trust in Jesus Christ. I wanted to mention this because I feel like this has been really helpful. In addition to the amazing worship that we have on Sunday and all the videos that we have on YouTube of worship songs from the adults and from the youth, in addition to all of this, I've really been blessed by the radio of AM 610. And so I know there's been controversy in the past about this radio station, but they've changed their ways. And I've been noticing how helpful it is in the midst of this quarantine while I'm in my room to hear this radio station, because this radio station, unlike any other that I found in the Bay Area, truly helps me to focus on who God is on a regular basis, whether it's the sermons that I hear from Alistair Begg and John MacArthur, or whether it's the worship songs that they play. Play. But one of the things that really caught my attention is that these are worship songs that really detail who God is 
in the old hymns of the past. And to be frank, I need that. I need to be reminded of who God is. I need to be reminded in the word. I need to be reminded in prayer. But I need it to be reminded in my mind on a regular, continuous, every day, every moment basis. Because the more and more I'm aware of my sin, the more and more I realize that he is truly my only hope. And that is the message I want to leave for you this morning, is a focus and a reminder of the eager expectation of the return of Christ. And as we walk into a Christmas, uh, a holiday that celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ, as the old worship song says, and the soul with the arrival of Christ is able to feel its worth. I hope you'll experience that and understand that with what Christ has done for every single one of us. Let's pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you so much for Revelation chapter five. It has ministered to my soul so much. Along, Lord, with uh, the time that we've had in the word, along with, Lord, the time that we've had in prayer, along with the worship that we have with Jason and Tim, along with the fellowship and the youth ministry and the adult ministry and the English ministry and the Chinese ministry all coming together. God, this passage reminds me that in the midst of everything that's going on, with the things that we're so thankful for, even the things that are very frightening. You are the focus of our hope. No project, no plan, no word, no activity could ever replace, but could only point to what you have done for us. And so, Lord, as we wait in eager expectation for the culmination of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to endure whatever is ahead because we trust you and we are your children and you protect us like a lion because you were the lamb that was slain. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen.